What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You just earned yourself a detention, sir. Being here with you is already one big detention. Son of a bitch, that's another detention. Do you think I want to be babysitting you? No, I was praying your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a flying saucer. My father's dead. That's Professor Paul Giamatti in Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, which is open in wide release. This week, we've got a review of Payne's bittersweet 70s-set holiday film and our picks for the essential Werner Herzog. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Hey, Film Spotters, it's finally happening. We're coming to L.A. The Film Spotting 2023 wrap party is going to be held live at Regal L.A. Live on Saturday, January 13th. We can't wait to bring this show out to all of our friends on the West Coast. I'll be there. Josh Larson will, of course, be there. Sam Van Halgren will be there. Michael Phillips will be there. He's already got his beach towel packed. He's got his sunglasses ready. You can get tickets starting Monday, November 27th at 10 a.m. Central Time. If you're hearing this after Monday, go to filmspotting.net, filmspotting.net slash events, or there's a link and an image right there on the main page. We, of course, as part of our wrap party, are going to share our favorite movie moments of 2023. You don't want to miss it. Again, filmspotting.net is where you can get your tickets. There's general admission tickets. There's also some VIP tickets available, which means you get to participate in a little meet and greet with the film spotting team prior to the show. If you're a film spotting family member who wants to go and you haven't already gotten your tickets, check your email. We send a newsletter out. As usual, our family members get early access. You also get a discount on those tickets. Check your email or email feedback at filmspotting.net and we'll try to set you up with those tickets. We're very excited about this partnership with Regal Cinemas and their Regal Unlimited membership plan. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. When you want to watch a movie in a premium format like 4DX or IMAX, RPX or ScreenX, your Regal Unlimited membership gets you into those premium experiences at a reduced cost. And with Regal Unlimited, you don't just save money on tickets. You also can save on snacks. You get 10% off all non-alcoholic concession items. You can sign up now in the Regal app or by visiting REG movies.com slash unlimited we do have a link in the notes for this show over at filmspotting.net it's a beautiful theater there at la live in a perfect location we hope to see you there film spotting's 2023 rap party live at regal la live welcome to film spotting and happy thanksgiving weekend everyone josh we said we were going to take a week off yet here we are in front of the mics giving everyone a little film spotting fix ahead of their turkey and stuffing and sweet potato casserole, one of my favorites, and of course, my true favorite. Really, the only reason I get up for Thanksgiving, pecan pie. I like to think someone is listening to this. Right now, I see you doing the dishes. That that person who, you know, doesn't have the gift for cooking or uh-huh. baking, but they put in the work when it's all done. They just go in the kitchen. Maybe they're looking for some alone time. I don't know. Is this getting a little too personal, Adam? Maybe they no. just they just want to like have, put on put in the earbuds and scrub away, and we're here for them. And I thought you were saying this 
truly all about me. And and you were getting into some real personal insight, Josh, because you have me completely pegged. I can't do anything in the kitchen. I can't do anything (laughs) in the kitchen. Now, now mind you that the house I'm in on Thanksgiving is going to have 25 or so people in it. And it's a decent sized house, but there's still going to be a ton of noise and there's not going to be any escape from anything. But Mm -hmm. when it comes to cooking or baking, I'm of no use in the kitchen. The one thing I know I can do and I've committed myself to doing the past few years is doing the dishes. I take the lead. I own it, Mm -hmm. load up the dishwasher, wash things by hand. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be of some value in service yep. on Thanksgiving, Josh. We see you, Adam, and we appreciate you. <laughs> we'll return in a couple of weeks with a full show, a full normal film spotting, whatever constitutes normal, Josh. This week we do have a review of Alexander Payne's The Holdovers playing in wide release. We're also going to get to the essential Werner Herzog, at least according to us. Now, you might say there's never a bad time to talk about Werner Herzog. But he does have a new memoir out, and recently at the Refocus Film Festival at Iowa City's film scene, they feeded him with a Cinema Savant Award. We thought we would pay our respects by reflecting on our favorite Herzog films and the movies that really we do feel are kind of the starting point. What do do you have to know if you're trying to familiarize yourself with Werner Herzog? Again, more coming on that. Later, let's get to The Holdovers. It's Alexander Payne's first film since 2017's Downsizing with Matt Damon. We didn't review it on the show. I still have not caught up with it, Josh. I I can't then go to Letterboxd and put up my Payne ranking, can I? I I mean, you can. Yes. As you know, I can't. You won't. And I don't think we're alone in that. I think Downsizing, fair to say, probably Payne's least seen film. And that counts. What was his debut? Citizen Ruth, I believe it was. So yes. So yeah, I don't think we're alone, but I do feel like I need to catch up with it. This is then our first Alexander Payne review in 10 years since 2013's Nebraska. That was a yeah, film. We how both, about that? We both quite liked it was your number seven of that year. So it didn't make good. my, didn't make my top 20, but looks like over on Letterboxd, I gave it three and a half stars. So fan of the movie for the holdovers, Payne reunites with Paul Giamatti who, of course, starred quite memorably in Payne's Sideways. In this one, Giamatti plays Paul Hunnam, a private school history teacher. It goes without saying almost a curmudgeonly private school history teacher who's been tasked with babysitting the few students who have nowhere to go during winter break. Dominic Sessa is Angus, a bright but troubled student who is among the left behind. Divine Joy Randolph plays Mary, who runs the school cafeteria. She's mourning the death of her son, a former student of the institution who died in Vietnam. The film is very much set in 1970. Here's a clip. And you gentlemen, did you save room for dessert? Hmm. Yeah, what's that? That's our signature dessert, Cherry's Jubilee. Mm. Sounds great. (laughs) Bring the young vandal here, Cherry's Jubilee. I'm afraid I can't. The dish contains brandy. Same deal with the bananas, Foster. Yeah, but doesn't the alcohol just burn off? Mm. It's still against the rules, ma'am. Fine. I'll order the cherry jubilee. We can share it. I can't allow that either. Can we say it's his birthday? It's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday, young man. Let's get you a slice of cake or some other age-appropriate dessert. Christ on a crutch. What kind of a fascist hash foundry are you running here? You can hear there in that clip a little bit of that lacerating humor we maybe expect from 
Paul Giamatti in an Alexander Payne movie after seeing them together in Sideways. I like to think about the holdovers, Josh, as as a spiritual successor in some ways, a much warmer, gentler spiritual successor to Sideways. We may get into that more, but this is a movie I've been giving you the little breadcrumbs for a few weeks, hoping that I'd I'd implant in your mind that you have to not just enjoy this movie, but you have to kind of love it because that's that's how I feel about it. And it's the rare movie, too. We'll get into the reasons why we like it. But I still think when this happens, we have to say it, or at least I want to make sure I express it. We talk about a lot of films on this show that we know aren't for everyone. <laughs> they might be acquired tastes. Some of them might be more, quote unquote, film critic or film snob movies. We both have instances where we say to people, yeah, we just talked about that movie. I love it, but I, I don't know if I'd recommend it or not. The Holdovers is the first movie in a long time. I feel like I can pretty much say to anybody, go see it. You have to mm -hmm. go see it. And so far it's happened. I knew my daughter Sophie would love it. She went and saw it, loved it. She brought her mom with her because Sarah was mad at me that I loved the movie so much and and went and saw it alone. So she said, I'm going to go with Sophie. And then she invited her sister. And Sarah and her sister don't see a lot of movies. They are not cinephiles. And I was like, great, the more the merrier. You're all going to love it. I didn't say that to him, but I knew it. And guess what? They loved it. In fact, hopefully she won't mind me saying so, but Sarah's sister at one point near the end of the film turned to Sarah and said, this is such a great movie. I do think it's one of those films that could inspire even those who maybe don't regularly get out to the cinema to feel like they're watching something special. After all of that, that's how I felt about it. I hope you felt similarly. Wow, do I love this movie. And yeah, it's so good. It's on the outside looking in to my top 10, and I've, I feel what? like our conversation, my top 10 is packed, man. Holy crap, a, you have seen more than me, but wow. It's been a good year. It's entrenched it's, in my top 10. Well, it's, let me tell so you. So far. It, it's it's got an uphill battle, but probably after our conversation, it'll have a slot. <sighs> yeah, it's just, you know, I get what you're saying, and there are ways it's just conventional enough to appeal to people, and this is not a slight, but who are looking for that in a mm -hmm. film experience, right? But it's more than that. It's not, it's treading that sort of that line of looking to land in a place of comfort while for the most part exploring discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that's a really tricky thing to pull off honestly with conviction that I think the holdovers does. It's it, it's I don't know, you know, since the descendants maybe of pains and we've both admitted to not seeing downsizing, so maybe it's this, you know, cheery love fest. But I don't know since The Descendants that Payne has been as interested in human decency. And I've mostly been on his side. I've never been one who said, you know, I've questioned his evisceration of his characters. But I've also always recognized that it does come from a genuine point of interest in them and their predicament and their mm -hmm. personalities. Right? But this is something different. This is something about recognizing how people can work towards it's really about the hard work of just being kind and how people who are not predisposed to that at all, whether they're teenagers with severe emotional challenges or professors 
with yes, severe emotional challenges, but also just stuck in their way and being a little pompous and a little arrogant. Kindness is not an, an instinct that comes naturally. And this movie slowly and surely finds a way for all of them to get there. And I would include Divine Joy Randolph, who plays Mary Lamb, the school's cook, in this. She has different reasons for not being inclined toward kindness, and it's because of what is what she suffered, the loss of her son, as we mentioned, in Vietnam. Yeah. And, as she's and cooking, institutional, quite literally, racism in this case. Exactly. As she's cooking yeah. for all the other sons who weren't drafted, mm-hmm. right? But she, too, manages to find her way towards it. And I don't know, man. I mean, Alexander Payne delivering a, a movie full of Christmas spirit. I didn't I think know. I'd ever see it. I know. And I, I can talk more about what I mean by Christmas spirit, but it's here and it's real and it's something and everybody yeah. should experience it. Yeah, I really like that that phrase. It's about the hard work of being kind. I think that's true. And I think that actually nicely gets at one of the things I love about this film. Well, first of all, I think it it earns it. It earns ultimately where it comes out. And, yes. and as much as we believe who these characters are and why they are the way they are, there's nothing glib or superficial about the journey that these characters go on and and whatever transformation they undergo. And, and that's really it for me. I was really kind of stunned, not only watching it, but walking out and thinking, this is a film. Now, I'm really glad I hadn't seen the trailer. I did watch the trailer before another movie after I'd already seen the holdovers. And I couldn't believe, <laughs> I couldn't believe that it just, it told the whole story. Now on some level, that's not that big of a deal because of the point I'm trying to make Josh, which is within the first 15 minutes of this movie, I felt like I knew exactly where it was going, or I felt like I knew what the arc of the story was going to be. Of course you have a sense of that when you've got a movie about two characters, we see that they're both, outsiders they're alienated from the other people their fellow students their fellow faculty members from each other you know that they're stuck together of course they're going to come to some kind of understanding right yeah and yet Form it's a, a movie family right yeah and yet it's a movie that's impossible to spoil because it still surprises you how it gets there the details of how it gets there the the details the specificity of the of the transformation that the characters do make it it's still for me i'll just say the word surprise again it constantly surprised me with those little character moments those little character revelations and yeah i didn't i didn't think about that you know as you said it i didn't think about me saying it's a movie i can recommend to anybody as being something that could really be taken in any kind of backhanded way and i I know you didn't interpret it that way i definitely don't think it's a movie that's appealing to the the lowest common denominator in any sense i i just think it's a movie that's that's so smart and so funny and ultimately is i'll use that word again so warm that if you give it the time i'm surprised if it's a movie that most people don't get on its wavelength and that warmth is something that is surprising when you think about pain you go back to his yeah. films, even the ones I've been pretty high on. That's not that's not what I'm looking for. And that's certainly not what I'm getting out of those films. And maybe, Josh, that's what I mean, too, when I say I kind of like seeing it as a pairing. I think it's meant to be or or it's hard not to see it of a pair with a film like Sideways, where he's got that character again, who's 
a failed, if you will, in some ways, a failed intellectual, right? We learn a little bit more about his character. He's, he's someone who's bitter. He's very cynical, very literary. So he feels like that character in a lot of ways, the character we met in Sideways and some of us really responded to and like that jaded sense about him. And then to have that character and some of those same traits come through here, but have him go on a journey where we really do see a bit more of a change to him. I, I love that we have we have both. We have both versions of that type of character now in pain films that Paul Giamatti gets to play. Yeah. I mean, Giamatti is, he's in his schlubby sweet spot here, but mm-hmm. I don't think we should just take that for granted, right? That right. It's, no. Uh, it, yeah. He's, he's just incredible. And how about Dominic Sessa? I know. I mean, pretty much, is this a debut? I, I should I know think this. it I, is. I think it might be, right? I mean, definitely mm-hmm. a newcomer. And as the most challenging student that, that Giamatti's teacher has to deal with, what I like about the performance is the character he plays Angus is very smart. He's also impulsive. He's very destructive to others and himself. Mm-hmm. And the quality, I don't know, maybe that maybe this is like revealing too much of like thinking back to myself at that time of being unable to stop yourself from blurting out the worst possible truth at the worst possible moment. Mm-hmm. You know, that that just like when when something is halfway out of your mouth and you realize like oh i should stop but you don't <laughs> it's like it seems like a very teenager thing that um that dominic sessa co- captures so well here and you just you feel what the giamatti character does you feel so bad for him given mm-hmm. his situation but you want to throttle him for how he's handling it no wonder you're afraid of women i am not Afraid of women. Sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. Dr. Gertler says I don't always give consideration to my audience. Ah. And who is Dr. Gertler? My shrink. Has Dr. Gertler ever tried a good swift kick in the ass? But then you bring in Divine Joy Randolph. And what I really liked about this movie is I think we've talked about a couple of films in recent years where white filmmakers are trying to bring in an outside perspective and nobly wanting to do that, but sometimes clumsily doing it. Yes. And I really think, and let's credit also here the screenwriter. This is written by David Hemmingson. Finding a way to do that that is to bring her story, Mary Lamb's story, into this other story that is natural, that makes sense, that also honors her perspective. Mm-hmm. We get a handful of scenes that are completely about her visiting her sister and spending time with her that give give us a sense of her world apart from the male white characters worlds right that she is brought into so i think that's crucial and how about that shot of her this is a little bit what i mean about christmas spirit is it's not just that everything is sweet and saccharine this movie doesn't have that but they end up at a christmas party the three of them and mary is sitting against a record player lost in her own thoughts, listening to the temptation silent night. And it's just how she holds herself Mm -hmm. in the scene where, you know, she's thinking about her son, yet she's happy to be there at this gathering and to have found a place to be. Cause she says she's staying there to honor her son's memory. She could have left, but she doesn't feel like it would be right to celebrate Christmas without him with her family somewhere else. But now she's in this 
in-between space, right? She's with other people celebrating Christmas, yet thinking about him. And just the way that she holds herself, again, uh, mm-hmm. Divine Joy Randolph holds herself in that space is is so devastating. So I could go on about this as a Christmas movie. I'll, I'll just leave it at this. I think this is very akin to A Charlie Brown Christmas, the TV special that is one... I've watched since I was a kid every year and captures both the melancholy and the idea of, you know, the original Christmas story being all about a gift. And I think that's fully captured in the holdovers right down to, you know, a pretty crappy Christmas tree that Giamatti's teacher drags in that's, that's supposed to do the job. And, you know, doesn't look like a tree that should do the job, but manages to do the job. Mm-hmm. So it's just, this is really a wonderful Christmas movie. Yeah, I really had the same reaction to how sensitively Payne introduces that character of Mary and weaves her into the film in a way that never feels like, actually, he's trying to weave her in. She is just as crucial to this trifecta of characters and to that overall sense of of melancholy that you touched on as the other two characters in this film. And Payne does, I haven't, I haven't embarked on, or I haven't dove into Josh, a a lot of Alexander Payne discourse over the years, but it seems pretty likely he's been one of those filmmakers who's probably been accused of telling stories only about white characters or not having enough diversity in his films. And at first, when we met Mary, I I was a little worried. I was a little worried that, that she might be a character who would be only a peripheral character in this film who would sort of check that box. And then not only was I was I relieved, but I was so thrilled to find that that character is such a crucial part of that film. Crucial. And, and that stature, how she carries herself, how she carries the weight. It, it is the, the weight of that role, as we both said, in this film overall. And I, I just found that my concerns pretty quickly dissipated is I saw how crucial that character was going to be to this film and that that Payne was going to have her be someone who who has her own story to tell and he was going to handle it with as much care as he as he does here. And then you at least have to mention here this this approach that he takes. I said very much a 1970s set movie and we get that with the voiceover the classic movie guy voiceover in the uh, the narration of the trailer right for this film but it's portraying or it's set in 1970 and it it's made like a movie would be made in 1970 and in so many respects it felt to me and I don't know whether or not this is one of his direct touchstones or not but it felt to me like I was watching a great Hal Ashby character study oh, from that time. Totally. Right. Yeah. I mean, Harold and Maude is, is yep. clearly a, a touch point for this as a, a journey of a, a teenager and a relationship, a different kind, but a relationship with an older character. The soundtrack, the use of the soundtrack wall to wall in this film, so effective. It is a movie that filled me with so much joy to watch. And Josh, if that's not the Christmas spirit, I don't I don't know what is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean these these choral renditions of holiday carols, right? They're just they're kind of slipped into the score overall delicately, and I appreciated that, which is of course another Charlie Brown Christmas touch. The Holdovers is currently out in wide release. If you see it, if you disagree with us, you know what? Just keep it. You can just keep it to yourself. 
We don't we don't really want to know why we're wrong. This this is not up for debate. It's not up for debate. You gotta like the holdovers. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Herzog's films sometimes speak unclearly. This one speaks in blunt, unforgiving despair. That was Roger Ebert writing in 1977 about Werner Herzog's Agira, Wrath of God. That clip you heard was from the director's 1972 masterpiece, and we're talking about Werner Herzog because the director has a new memoir out with the very Herzogian title, Every Man for Himself and God Against All. That title and unforgiving despair, apparently we're not talking about Christmas movies anymore here in yeah, film spotting. A little bit of a shift here. Herzog was in Iowa City last month for both the Iowa City Book Festival and for the concurrent Refocus Film Festival. Josh, you and I were also in town for the fest. We did a live taping at Iowa City's film scene. It was a conversation about not just our favorite Herzogs, but also the films that we consider essential Herzog, especially for people who were new to the director. Worth mentioning, as we did last week, that hanging over this conversation you're about to hear is our entirely justified fear that Herzog might walk in on our talk at any moment since he was in town and he was milling about film scene not long before we started taping. We were we were only comforted by the fact that Herzog was very emphatic about saying, I'm in town as a writer. Oh, and no. not as a filmmaker. Don't. don't. Oh, boy. <laughs> I did it. I did. I didn't do it no. in the live taping. I, I'm giving you that gift. It's my Christmas gift to you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> my very bad Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Let's go now to Iowa City and our essential Werner Herzog films. Welcome to Film Spotting Live at Refocus 2023. I'm Adam. This is Josh. I believe, Josh, this is your first time in Iowa City. Yeah. How's it Seems been? strange um, because we're really not far away in Chicago, but it's been, it's been lovely. I understand why you made the move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the reasons. I mean, you guys have, you've got an amazing bookstore, Prairie Lights. You've got this place, Film Scene. That's really all I need in my city. So you guys are set. Uh, it's been great to visit. We're going to devote our time to discussing the work of Refocus special guest Werner Herzog, someone we have a very uh, soft spot for, someone we have a lot of fondness for. Going back to the very early days of the show, I think we'll probably get into that a little bit. He is, of course, earning the Cinema Savant Award later tonight. He has an autobiography that's out now. So by way of applause, because this is a podcast, so you can't raise your hands, how many people, again, by way of applause, feel like you really know his work? You know his stuff, you've seen a bunch of his films. Okay, this bodes well for us, Josh. Mm-hmm. We can really, That's we can good. just make up whatever we want at this <laughs> point, I think. How many people have seen a few of his films? Okay, how many people until right now had no idea who Werner Herzog was? Okay, good. <laughs> 74 credits as a director on IMDb going back to his first short films in the early 1960s. We will admit there are plenty of titles among those 74 that we still need to see. But again, hopefully we can we can be of service to all of you who are interested in Herzog or are curious about Herzog and his work. And maybe you're a little bit nervous or unsure about how to get started. That's, that's the approach we're going to take. Maybe you can set it up for the audience a little bit, Josh. 
Yeah, we went back and forth a little bit, I think, between we've done starter pack lists before for filmmakers as revered as Herzog, just to give people an idea of how to um, begin with their massive filmographies. So that's a little bit what we're doing, but we also we also tossed around the idea of essential Herzog. And um, there's you know minor distinctions there, maybe we'll talk about, but the ones you have to see. So maybe it's a, there's a handful of titles you've always heard of, which ones do I really need to see if it's not realistic that I'm going to spend the next two months watching only Herzog films? Maybe where should I start for those of you who applauded with, you know, not knowing him all that well? Or which ones do I really have to get to that I haven't if you've already kind of dipped your toes in his filmography? So I think we'll we'll manage to hit both of those with uh, maybe we're going to get to seven, eight titles. I think we have like eight. That. I yeah. think we have eight total, one that he didn't direct. And actually that nicely transitions here into a clip we do want to play off the top. We thought it would make sense before we jump in to meet our subject. Let's go ahead and go to the clip here. Chris. Herzog is stranded in the jungle with a 300-ton steamship that won't move, and time is running out. He needs money to move the ship, but no one will invest unless the ship moves first. Behind his back, some of the actors are talking about getting out while the getting is good. Only a few of the cast, crew, and Indians believe in his dream anymore. Even Herzog is beginning to wonder. Of course, we are challenging nature itself, and it hits back. It just hits back, that's all, and that's grandiose about it, and we have to, to accept that it is much stronger than we are. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic, I see it more full of obscenity. It's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here, I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing, they just screech in pain. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, uh, Chris, for helping us out there. Yet he kept going back there. <laughs> I, I know. I know. A quick, quick verbal meme, me, whenever my wife suggests we go camping. That, that's the exact speech I give every time. So we'll get, we'll get back to that film uh, and maybe that moment here in a little bit. But Josh, why don't you, why don't you start our list off? Yeah, I think, you know, jumping from that clip, just a, a couple qualities as I was thinking about what to put on on this list that came out to me when it comes to Herzog films that you already saw in that brutality of nature. We're probably going to talk about that a lot. Egomania uh, and, and other forms of madness. The possibility of transcendence. I think you see that uh, here and there. And death, a lot of death, a lot of talk about death, obsession over death. Um, so those will pop up at, definitely in, in a lot of these titles. I want to start with one, um, The Enigma of Caspar Hauser. And this wouldn't be my starter pack number one film to go to. I'll just say that. I think this is maybe more of an essential title. Um, and it's a film also that I feel only Herzog would have made. That was one thing I was thinking about in terms of essential Herzog is no other filmmaker might take this on. But The Enigma of Caspar Hauser um, I think is fascinating. And it's a true story. 
that, of course, attracted him because it's this mystery that essentially is questioning what it means to be human. So adaptation here in a sense of an actual story from 1828 Nuremberg in Germany. This young man just appears in this town, barely able to walk and barely able to talk, even explain where he came from. So Herzog takes this and uh, makes it into this film. We do eventually learn that uh, uh, this uh, character, Caspar Hauser, was kept in prison from the outside world for uh, a number of years by a mysterious stranger. And that's an experience, as I said, when he gets to this village, he can barely articulate or explain. So I think we're going to see how so many of Herzog's films are about supposedly civilized man contending with with raw power, the raw power of the natural world. And the enigma of Caspar Hauser is interesting to me. This is why it's maybe one of the fourth or fifth title you might want to get to, because it's flipping this a little bit. It's taking this story of Caspar Hauser and offering a rejection of that supposed civilization. And he has Caspar, this figure, as his hero here. So uh, once this town takes Casper in, he goes through a couple of phases. There's a, a circus, a traveling circus that tries to exploit him as a, a freak show element, really, a freak show act. There's also a rich patron who takes him in, tries to cultivate Casper according to his ideas of refinement. We see a pair of pastors trying to indoctrinate him into their understanding of religion. And Casper kind of goes from one of these groups to the next. No one's letting him discover his own pure self. Um, maybe Katie, the house servant, mm-hmm. um, is giving him that space, who is is played lovingly by Bridget Mira, um, some of you might recognize from Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, we, another film we recently discussed on Film Spotting. Sie sind doch zunächst guten Nutzer als nur zum Dasetzen. Aber Kasper. Und warum erlaubt man ihnen nur häkeln und kochen? Da musst du dich schon an den Herrn Daumer wenden, Kasper. Der wird schon eine schickliche Antwort haben. Den Herrn Daumer habe ich auch schon gefragt. We should also talk about who's playing Kasper Hauser, uh, Bruno S., fascinating figure in his own right in the film world, um, abused as a child, which left him uh, temporarily deaf. He spent over the course of a couple decades um, being placed in institutions. Um, I keep this in mind when I think of a line from the movie of what a law officer says about Casper. He says, the intelligence of this man is in a state of absolute confusion. Now, I didn't know any of this background about Bruno S. Uh, I just watched Enigma of Casper Hauser for for this recording, and so I didn't know any of this background. And you know, normally I'm skeptical of of performances or characters you know, that have maybe some kind of developmental disability. Uh, I kind of kind of raise my eyebrows at that. But even before knowing that, I sensed a certain authenticity to what was going on with Bruno S. on the screen here. And I I think that just has to come from his own experiences, his own story, his own person. For me, it's a mesmerizing performance. We haven't talked about it, Adam. I'm eager to hear what you think. He has this blank expression that um, even early on, you sense his blank as a form of self-protection in a way. And it'll occasionally rise to this... um, mild confused alarm i thought a lot of about like the expression a dog gives when it's suddenly scared unsure of its surroundings but he's very touching in his portrayal too and i didn't find this exploitative at all so 
this is a whole nother category we could go into, Herzog and actors. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to get into that when more Klaus Kinski talk comes up. Here I do think his work with Bruno S. is just superb. So so The Enigma of Caspar Hauser, I want to get us started with that one. 1974, this in this is, again, maybe not the first film if you're new to Herzog, but I would include it in an uh, essential list. Yeah, I think that Bruno S. performance is remarkable when you consider he had he had never acted before. And you mentioned the authenticity. I read somewhere that he struggled for whatever reasons. He struggled with some of the language, even just the the official dialect that they were speaking, the style of German they were speaking. And you you then get that, you know, it comes through in, the, in terms of this character trying, struggling sometimes to really articulate what he's trying to express. And this is one of those performances you would never, in my mind, give to someone who's never acted before. This, this is something in terms of the physicality of it and the, the sounds you're going to make, really embodying this character that I feel like you'd want you'd to ease somebody uh, into a role like this with a lot of training. And yet we get just the opposite here. And the movie um, really, I think, thrives because of it. Even after all of that, if you don't really have a sense, Josh expressed it so well, but if you're not really clear on what this movie is like, here, here's what I came up with, Josh, some touchstones. And I'll be clear, all three of these came out after the enigma of Casper Hauser, and I'm not going to do Herzog's film justice when I say this, but imagine the 2015 movie Room starring Brie Larson, mix it with David Lynch's The Elephant Man and Hal Ashby's Being There, and you might get a sense of what the enigma of Casper Hauser is like. I think there, there's even a, a pretty big homage to Bergman and The Seventh Seal and The Dance of Death uh, near the end of this film. And for me, it does. it's not the film I would start with either, Josh, in terms of if you're, you're really going to jump in to Herzog's work. But I do think it's essential because we need to see one of these Bruno S. performances. We need to see one of these collaborations. They only got to make two films together, the other being um, Strozek. But the other reason why I think it's important for this list is I think we see early on a couple things from from Herzog we'll, we'll probably get into a lot more. One is the occasional, it seemed to me, interjection of of real life, of documentary-like footage. We sometimes see what appeared to me as non-professional actors that his camera just gets focused on. Think about the woman who's just um, doing her laundry. She's, she's in the river, you know, washing her clothes and glaring at Herzog's camera. She seemed to me uh, to be non, uh, a non-professional actor at that point. But the other big thing is that um, the, the character in this film that I laughed at the most, that I think Herzog has the most scorn for, is the town recorder. Yeah. There's, a, there's this official who goes around documenting everything. He's writing down everything. They're trying to make sense of who Casper Hauser is and, and where he came from. Uh, and you really get this by the end of the film or at the end of the film. All these characters are so focused on coming up with an explanation, yeah. right, for Casper Hauser that they don't consider any of the larger truths that, <laughs> that his very existence, but also all of his queries and these pronouncements he makes that, that they raise. They just, they just want to understand it. They, wanna, they don't want to understand it. They actually just want to explain it away. Mm-hmm. Well, they want to categorize them. And yes. I think that recorder you're talking about, yeah, I'm never, I was never quite sure if he was like the town you know, journalist or if he was- Some kind of bureaucrat. Uh, uh, yeah, some sort of bureaucrat. But I think the, the phrase he uses frequently, he's gathering all the information, He's repeating what the other people tell him, mm-hmm. making sure he gets it right. It's, again, putting everything in the proper box. And then he says at the end, this will make a good report. And he feels satisfied with that. And yes. 
that's what you can't do with Casper Hauser. Yeah. But all of these people that I mentioned are trying to do that to him. Um, and I think I think this recorder even gets the last word in the film. I think he might. He? Yeah. A good report, definitely not what Werner Herzog is ever interested in, even if he's making a documentary. And we're going to talk about a few of them. So my, my next pick for our starter pack is a 2010 documentary called Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And it it's about these paintings that were discovered in 1994. Scientists discovered caverns within a, a cave in France called Chauvet Cave. And goes back 30,000 years, all this artwork on the walls. This is, you know, Neanderthals and, and mammoths basically roaming the earth. And at this point, maybe um, we thought art uh, the origin of art went back maybe 15,000 years, and here they can date it 30,000 years ago. And Herzog got access to the caverns and went in there to the caves with a with a crew. He filmed it in 3D, and he produces one of his explorational and ethnographic uh, films, Encounters at the End of the World being another. There are many others we could mention. And watching this film, you're just kind of stunned, first of all, by the art itself. It's it's primitive, but it's awesome to behold. And occasionally you're you're surprised by its sophistication, by its intricacy. But then you add in Herzog's narration, that voice and those provocative questions that he's lobbing at us, the viewer, when when we reviewed it on the show, Josh, I said that I don't know how scientifically accurate any of it is. Uh, and 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 while the the scientific stuff, uh, that academic stuff, is compelling enough, it's really the more abstract and the esoteric truths that that Herzog is teasing out that really fascinate. I do think there'd be a great maybe there multiple ones have been made. There's a great National Geographic documentary version of this film to be made again if it hasn't already. But I'm going to take Herzog and his his ecstatic truth approach. We'll get into that a little bit more as well. And the the lingering question from Cave of Forgotten Dreams for me was was really about the purpose of art. There's a suggestion made throughout the film that some of these drawings were maybe used in religious um, or spiritual ceremonies, but you really can't help but think about whether or not these artists had any sense of, could they have had any sense of a legacy? Were they... Were they creating art in the hope that, that someone, some other being in the current times or in, in a future would be ever looking at these and contemplating them and their lives? Or were they, were they artists in the purest form, which is they, they had a story to tell. They, they, they felt like they had to express something about their lives and their existence, and they got it out the only way uh, that they that they knew how, and they could only do that in some kind of transformative way. So a lot of fascinating questions that emerge from Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And uh, of course, part of the fun of it being a Herzog film is that you get a postscript with this whole sequence about mutated albino crocodiles <laughs> that that Herzog makes some connection to with the caves and the, the artists who made the, <laughs> the cave paintings. And, you know, it turns out it's a, it's a complete Herzogian invention. You know, he, they have nothing to do with, with that cave whatsoever. And not too long after the movie came out, he was on the Colbert Report with Stephen Colbert. And he said this, I want the audience with me in wild fantasy in something that illuminates them. You see, if I were only fact-based, the book of books and literature then would be the Manhattan phone directory. Four million entries, everything correct. But it flies out of my ears and I do not know, do they dream at night? Does Mr. Jonathan Smith cry in his pillow at night? We do not know anything when we check the correct entries in the phone directory. I am not this kind of filmmaker. 
Not surprisingly, mutant albinos swim and breed in these waters. A thought is born of this surreal environment. Not long ago, just a few ten thousands of years back, there were glaciers here 9,000 feet thick. And now a new climate is steaming and spreading. Fairly soon these albinos might reach Chauvet Cave. Looking at the paintings, what will they make of them? Yeah, the ecstatic truth question is, you know, that's the phrase that comes to mind with him. And rethinking about some of these movies and this conversation, I started to think about that as documentary melodrama. Um, you know, we talk about a Cirque melodrama and, and melodrama being a fictional way of making, of storytelling. But Herzog seems to do that with the documentary form, just heightening things, mm -hmm. expanding their resonance, the symbolic potential in these factual subjects that we're supposedly exploring. Um, so it's just inflating that to documentary to the realm of melodrama. The, you know, the other thing the cave artists could be doing is just trying to understand their own existence at that time, True. right? In making mm -hmm. those paintings. And I think Cave of Forgotten Dreams is fascinating as a Herzog film because it parallels his own, his depths to do that now through film form, the depths he'll go to, to do that now, I should say. Um, you know, he wants to go back to the very beginning of humans doing this, doing art to try to understand what does it mean to live now. Um, you know, he'd go back to the Garden of Eden if he could and make, and make that documentary to see what what was this expression like then. And you mentioned the 3D, Adam. I, I love this too because it sort of points to Herzog as an aesthetic adventurer, you know, well into his career at this point, um, but willing to embrace other tools and see how they might make this documentary more melodramatic. There's some amazing imagery when you get the, what are they, the slagtites, slagmites, I don't know which direction, which one goes, but you see a shot where because of the 3D, they're, they're almost merging in ways that you probably could only experience if you were there. And it's like this geologic yearning yeah. that he captures uh, in this film. So it's, um, yeah, it's one of my favorites, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Another documentary, probably his most well-known, I think I would absolutely start here. If there I think is I someone would who has not watched a Herzog film at all, I would start with Grizzly Man. Um, it's probably his most approachable. I think his most just enthralling in terms of the story it explores, yet it doesn't lose anything that makes a Herzog documentary um, unique. So this is from 2005, and it examines uh, the death of bear enthusiast, I think we can call him, <laughs> Timothy Treadwell. I don't think he had any scientific training, um, but he had a lot of interest and enthusiasm in grizzly bears to the point that he spent 13 summers um, in remote Alaska living among them. So a lot of what you get here is footage from Treadwell and that experience because he had some vaguely conceived nature documentary series of his own is what he was hoping to put together. Um, and in that footage, you know, he seems almost obsessed with the possibility of being killed by a grizzly bear. He talks about it so often. Um, that's the other, you know, things that he touches on. And that is indeed how his life ends. Well, the expedition coming close to close, but I'm still, of course, here. It's been over four months in the wilderness, and a hurricane force storm now building, over 50 mile an hour winds, soon over 70. The bears safely heading for their dens, the work 
to work successful. I'm over 20 pounds lighter. My clothes are rags. I've tried hard. I bleed for them. I live for them. I die for them. I love them. I love this. It's tough work. But it's the only work I know, and it's the only work I'll ever, I'll ever want. Take care of these animals. Take care of this land. He seems to hesitate in leaving the last frame of his own film. It's the only thing I know. It's the only thing I want to know. So you've got all those Herzog elements I mentioned at the top are coming together here. You've got harsh nature. You've got um, egomania of a sort. You have seeking transcendence through that nature. Um, so there's two sides of nature here, and, and then you get death. And what I think is so compelling about Treadwell as a Herzog figure, um, he stands apart from most of the others, most of them embodied by Klaus Kinski, in that he doesn't want to battle and defeat nature. That's not why he's there. He, his posture, he wants to hug it. Essentially, he's looking to hug he nature. He literally wants to hug nature. Get yeah. as close as he can. And it's almost like he's trying to escape Herzog's world, um, but um, can't. I mean, nature does not hug back. Uh, and and so he's kind of left in that place. Most Herzog figures find themselves. Yeah. This was my introduction to the films of Werner Herzog. So maybe that uh, clouds my judgment here a little bit in terms of suggesting it as a place to start. But it came out in 2005, in the fall of 05, maybe six or seven months after we had started film spotting. My, uh, our producer, Sam, my original co-host who's there in the audience and who joined me up here uh, last year, we saw that this was getting good reviews. It sounded fascinating. Maybe we had, if we're being totally honest, maybe we had heard of Werner Herzog, but he was completely new to us when we saw this film. And um, we came away feeling like we had to know a lot more. And that that started a deeper dive into his work. And we did one of our film spotting marathons where we watched all of the films, discussed all those films that, that Herzog made, made with Klaus Kinski. I think what fascinates me about this one, Josh, is, is that, that relationship, that, that dynamic that you touch on. There's a sense to me of a real quixotic kinship. I think that he sees a lot in Timothy Treadwell. Herzog does that he can respond to and relate to. And he's, Timothy Treadwell's a man Herzog's clearly curious about. He's making a film about him, but he's inherently drawn to him and curious about how he lives this way and why he lives this way. And he also has a deep empathy for him, perhaps driven by his utter inability to understand what, what Treadwell couldn't understand as Herzog puts it in the film, the overwhelming indifference of nature. They couldn't be more diametrically opposed on that point. Yeah. And again, I think that's really what, what draws him to him. And, 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 and rather than him wanting then to reject him or uh, think of him as a, a foolish or absurd figure, um, it just makes him want to understand him even more. That's one of Herzog's real gifts. So we've shared two documentaries. We're going to go with another one here. Uh, I'm, I'm picking Little Dieter Needs to Fly, which is also a nice companion here is we're at the refocus film festival and we're talking about adaptation this is a doc that that herzog made in 1997 and then in 2006 adapted his own documentary into a narrative film starring uh, christian bale but this is the story of dieter dangler german-born man who 
came to America, obsessed with flying, and enlists in the United States Air Force, and then he gets shot down over Vietnam, and he's, he's captured and he's tortured. I think for a period of five or six months, he was a, a prisoner of war before he did finally escape. He escaped his captors and made it, made it out of the jungle alive. So we'll, we'll tie this back to this notion of the ecstatic truth. Uh, two years after this film came out is when Herzog made what is now known as his Minnesota Declaration. Roger Ebert, was actually interviewing him. It was at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. They ran a month-long tribute to Herzog's films in 99, and he did this Q&A, and, and Herzog apparently came prepared. He had, he had something he wanted to share with the audience, and this, this Minnesota Declaration was really his, his declaration of principles, as, uh, certainly as a documentary filmmaker, maybe purely as a filmmaker, and it really did explain this idea once and for all, put it down on the record what he means when he talks about this notion of ecstatic truth. It's really like 12 commandments, if you will. And number five was this, there are deeper strata of truth in cinema, and there is such a thing as poetic ecstatic truth. It is mysterious and elusive and can be reached only through fabrication and imagination and stylization. What you're getting at, Josh, when you talk about the melodramatic aspects, perhaps, but what what you get Herzog doing is committing what's the greatest sin you can commit as a documentary filmmaker if you're someone who's really committed to a cinema verite observational approach, which is he's completely eschewing facts. He's completely eschewing this notion of being a fly on the wall. And he's not he's not recreating scenes. He's often just creating scenes. You know, he's he's not doing what a documentarian is supposed to do, which is capture life sort of unadorned. He's you know, he's adorning it and and he's gonna he's gonna shoot it the way he wants. And so there's a key scene that whenever I talk to students or anyone else about Herzog and the ecstatic truth. I always go back to early in the film. Now, there are many examples you could you could choose, but um, there's a scene where we see the the real you know Dieter Dangler in the dock uh, entering his house from the outside. Herzog's trailing him, and I think at least three times he opens and closes the door. They say this really seems strange to most people, but to me it's very important. It denotes freedom to be able to open or close a door. When I was a prisoner. That I couldn't open the door, and later on, when I was dying, those big doors in the sky would open up. And so, most people don't realize how important it is and the privilege that we have to be able to open the door, close the door. So, anyway, let's have what I got into, and uh, so be it. It's all shot as if this is happening in real time, and this is just the normal way that that Dieter enters his house. And it's easy for us as viewers to extrapolate why he spent six months in captivity. He was trapped not only by the jungle, but but spent a good chunk of it, you know, trapped in an actual um, prison. And um, we can understand this as part of the lingering psychological effects. And he's exercising his freedom to come and go as he pleases. Uh, maybe he also still has this innate fear of being locked in and confined again. And so this is a representation of that. But, you know, Herzog made this all up the same way he made up the albino crocodiles. Dangler at one point told him that he appreciated the feeling of being able to open and close a door. And Herzog ran with that and decided, well, I have to I have to depict that. Right. And, and that's what we get in the film. That's the ecstatic truth version of what is fundamentally truthful and a real insight into this uh, this character's psyche. So, you know, I've I've talked to some pretty well-known documentarians who take that more traditional approach about Herzog and his style and that ecstatic truth concept. And while they're all, Josh, very respectful of Herzog, 
And the way he does it, they're also very clear and adamant about saying, yeah, we would never do that. You know, we're, that, that is never for us. We would never cross a line. And they really see that as, as crossing a line. So you know, whenever discussing these types of questions around the ethics of doc filmmaking, Little Dieter and that, that scene is usually my, my starting point. And in fact, as to whether you care or not about any of that stuff I just got into or the problem of truth or how it's represented on screen in documentaries, Dieter's story alone is worth watching this film for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is maybe the most essential of the ones. I'm by no means a completist that I have seen um, by Herzog. Uh, and because it's working in that arena you're talking about, Adam, which is a, you know, a crucial quality of so many of his films, the story itself, um, and just the way it, it has tentacles to other Herzog films as well. I mean, you this prisoner aspect, we're talking about another figure, real-life figure, similar to someone like Casper Hauser, right? Um, I think about the other... A moment in Casper uh, Hauser where he describes his entrance into society as a very hard fall. It takes him a while to find those words, but that's how it comes out. Um, a form of, you know, ecstatic truth as well, maybe, that description. Um, and that brings me right to Dieter's post-rescue life and whether how much it does involve opening and closing these doors or how about the hoarding of food? Again, yeah, I don't exactly. know. He supposedly has you know food preserved under his kitchen in a special cabinet just so that he knows he'll always have food. Um, was that made up for the film? I, I, I'm maybe, guessing it was. I mean, they, <laughs> yeah. they actually had to build the, the little thing in his right. kitchen, but possibly. Um, yeah, and then another quality here that I've touched on um, is this idea of transcendence. I think Herzog is probably uh, drawn to Dieter because he talks about having these visions frequently. One, he mentions, again, everything is up for question in one of these documentaries, but Dieter talks about having a vision when he was escaping in the jungle of seeing his deceased father pointing you know, one direction to go. Um, and there's a Grizzly Man preview also in this film when Dieter is talking about his escape at another point and says that he saw this bear and this is what he says about it. this bear meant death to me it was really ironic the only friend i had in the end was death um so just the resonance of something like that uh depending on what the facts are or aren't um you know i think connects to so much of of Herzog's work and i want to say just a quick thing about the formal elegance of some of this um you know we talk about these more esoteric ideas so much, I think, when it comes to Herzog, that sometimes the aesthetics of his filmmaking can get lost. And there, he's dealing a lot with um, historical footage in this one, too, so there's some limitations to, to what that presents. But there is a series of um, superimposed shots that come when Dieter is sitting with a river behind him and talking about the other prisoner who escaped with him, Dwayne Martin, and did not survive. Um, and... After he's done talking, there are these superimposed shots of Dieter just sitting in silence. Um, and they kind of overlap each other, and one gets a little closer to him, then the next one gets a little closer to him, and they each get darker as well because the sun is going down. And, you know, beauty isn't something that Herzog's films are all that concerned with. Their markets are with the harshness, I think, of nature. But here is a moment that stands out where um, he lends that element at just the right time and place. So we've dared to invoke the name Klaus Kinski a few times. Josh, he might appear out of nowhere and haunt us. Let's, let's actually dive into the essential Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog collaborations. Yeah, a pair of films here, A Year of the Wrath of God and Fitzcarraldo. And they're hard for me to separate uh, for a couple of reasons. One of them is 
Kinski, who plays the lead in both roles, uh, the lead role in both of these films. And they're variations on a similar figure, you know, a, a man who, who is convinced that um, the Amazon region, maybe one of the most voracious areas on earth, can be defeated. Uh, these men both think that they can defeat this area, this place, in different ways. So 1972 is a gear of the wrath of God. This is about Spanish conquistadors, circa 1560 it is, in search of gold in the Peruvian Amazon. Then uh, 1982's Fitzcarraldo, set in the same region, is about an opera-obsessed entrepreneur who proposes building an opera house in the rainforest. Um, again, sort of a work of adaptation here because this is based on an actual figure who attempted this in the early 20th century. And the quest involved dragging a steamship over a steep hill from one tributary of the Amazon to another. So if you know anything about Herzog, it's probably you heard that he actually tried to recreate this. Um, and of course, both films, you know, they function as metaphors for the stories they tell. Simply by going to the Amazon to make a period piece, two different period pieces, um, and taking on those challenges, it can be seen as its own hubristic act of folly, right? Trying to even do that. And you sense this, it's like a double experience watching these movies because you're constantly aware, uh, because Herzog is such an accomplished filmmaker, of the immediate narrative and how tense that is. But you're also aware there's a corner of your brains like they were actually here trying to do this. In Aguirre, I think of this sequence where um, the remaining conquistadors, uh, they don't all make it shocking, are on this uh, crude log raft that's going down these rapids. And the water is flying onto the camera's lens. It's one of these instances where it's good to be reminded that the camera is there, that the water stays there. Um, because then you look at the actors' faces and they look terrified. They are not acting. Um, you, it's like they're begging for Herzog to say, cut and get them out of there. Kinski is looking right into the camera and telling, like staring down saying, you better not say cut, is what you get. Now, what's funny, in a documentary we'll get to, um, Herzog also describes Kinski as a bit of a wimp in these scenarios. So maybe he <laughs> is acting really well. Um, now, if I jump to Fitzcarraldo, I think about the portage sequence. That's, that's the one where you get that double experience of, I can't believe some guy tried to do this in the early 20th centuries. I can't believe this guy is doing this right now. And I'm seeing it. You get the ship. I mean, the massive undertaking of engineering, human labor, very controversial use of uh, indigenous extras uh, to actually create, make these scenes to get this ship to move up the hill. And Herzog also implies a lot of long shots so we can take in the massiveness of the attempt and aerial footage as well. So, you know, if we're looking at this in terms of the Herzogian figure that he seems to be drawn to, does Fitzcarraldo triumph at the end of the story? For those of you who've seen it, uh, I'd be curious to hear what you think. It's a little bit ambiguous. Kinski's conquistador, um, we pretty clearly see that he does not triumph, though he has grand plans still at the end. In Both his own them, mind, I'm not sure mind. he has a triumph. <laughs> yeah. Key distinction. Yeah, I don't think in his, in his own mind he could ever be defeated. Um, both of them, though, in reality, they bend to nature in a way um, that someone like Dieter Dengler did not. Um, it's an interesting thing about Dieter Dengler. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. This is Agira, I think his third feature, 1972, and, and you're just sort of in awe from the very beginning. And then, of course, as you get through the film, 
Herzog gives us early on in his career one of the all-time great opening shots and opening sequences. This this army coming through the jungle, snaking down this this steep mountain, and then the end that, that you touched on a little bit. Those final moments of of Aguirre's. It's it's a legitimate masterpiece. And if there's fans out there of Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. I haven't done the research on this. I I don't know that Coppola has ever come out and openly addressed the influence of Aguirre the Wrath of God, but it's impossible to not watch (laughs) Apocalypse Now and not see some of that influence. Another movie that had to have a documentary made about it because it was so insane. Exactly, right? I mean, if you like Apocalypse Now, you have to see this journey into the heart of darkness. And with Fitzcarraldo, yeah, it's that... It's that Herzogian line where the reality and fiction, you know, sort of blur together and he becomes, as a filmmaker, he becomes as obsessed as and as dangerously driven as his hero on screen. And that moment when you're so invested in it and whether you know the lore or not, you see the physical work that is being done and the attention the movie pays to how painstaking it is when that boat touches water. You want to talk about moments of transcendence. Yeah. That's yeah. that's You're one of the all timers. I mean, of course. You can't help but Yeah, because for you, it. you it's a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. you can't imagine that it, that it's actually occurring. So wholeheartedly recommend Aguirre and Fitzgeraldo. And then once you see those two films, yeah. you have to chase that with two documentaries, My Best Fiend and Burden of Dreams. Uh, one of these, I will note, Burden of Dreams, is the only one we're mentioning that wasn't directed by Herzog himself. It was directed by Les Blank, but uh, it chronicles the Burden of Dreams, the tumultuous, insane making of the movie Fitzcarraldo, the movie uh, that Josh is referencing. And then My Best Fiend is Herzog's chronicle of his tumultuous, insane relationship with Kinski through all of those collaborations. And it's it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure the scene we played, that's from Burden of Dreams, but I'm pretty sure it appears it in, yeah. in My Best Fiend as well, right? And like with Treadwell, when you watch these films and you you really start to think about this bizarre relationship that they had, um, I, I feel like he may not totally understand Kinski, but but he loves him, <laughs> or at minimum, he he has some adoration and and respect for him and there's a sense that he really now you know at the time now that Kinski is gone when this film is being made and he's looking back on his life and their their time working together there's a sense of real sadness that he doesn't have Kinski I, I feel like it may come it, it may come through in smaller moments amidst no, you're, no, you're, all of the chaos you're right. that's there I think this is where the ecstatic truth question gets mm-hmm. very interesting because now He's not just using someone else who he's met as his subject to expound on mm-hmm. these philosophical ideas. He's he's delving into an actual relationship he had and talking specifically and intimately about a person who's no longer alive, mm-hmm. um, who doesn't really have a voice in this documentary. He does quote from his autobiography, right? And um, that's interesting because Kinski describes Herzog the way Herzog would describe Kinski yeah. <laughs> as like a maniac. So yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, as we're talking about the value of this ecstatic truth, what does it mean when you're purporting to characterize a man's life and his work and you function in a way that, you know, being accurate isn't necessarily priority number one. It's I, There's no answer to it, but it right. came to mind in a different way with My Best Fiend for me. Sure. And, and I appreciate too that once you've seen these films and you hear some of the stories, you know the wild lore surrounding Kinski, but the movie also does – 
touch on his professionalism, his commitment when it when it was there, his commitment and his immense talent, like his undeniable immen- immense talent. And the last time I watched Agira, I had two takeaways from it. And, and one of them was really about the Agira character and Kinski's performance, which is we we see him ostensibly as this person who loses it in the jungle. And I think trying to reroute that thought back to everything we're saying about Herzog and his view of nature, I actually see Agira as the sanest, most practical member of the crew of conquistadors. Because it's not so much that he loses his mind, it's that he recognizes that the jungle is the perfect environment for his brand of delusion and that he can actually lean into it and embrace the possibilities. There's some madness there too, but he embraces the possibilities and there's a reason why, Josh, he's the last one standing. Wenn ich agiere will, dass die Vögel tot von den Bäumen fallen, dann fallen die Vögel tot von den Bäumen herunter. Ich bin der Zorn Gottes. Die Erde, über die ich gehe, sieht mich und bebt. The other part of that viewing was then also recognizing that, you know, Kinski isn't just this kind of howling madman, that it's easy to sometimes think he was. There are really subtle moments in that performance what's the, of Aguirre. What's the technique? It's, it's like Herzog calls it the, the Kinski twirl or the, in My Best Fiend, he describes mm-hmm. it, where a way that he would turn his leg and then step around so his profile came to the camera differently than any other actor would. So yeah. The, yeah, so the, the technical level suggests something at work far different than just, you know, getting in front of the camera and screaming. That's right. maybe the stereotype. Yeah. They made five films together, six if you count My Best Fiend. It was Aguirre, Wojciech, Nosferatu the Vampire, Fitzcarraldo, Cobra Verde, which is playing in this theater, I believe, at 4 p.m., not too long after we get done, if you want to stick around for that. But Kinski's one of those performers that, after watching these films, you recognize that that charisma, that undeniable charisma, the gravitas, but then there is... He plays a lot of madmen, but there's there's real sympathy you can have for a lot of these characters, especially Fitzcarraldo, I'd say. And, and again, he's big, but often very subdued. And then through all of these films, he's so dramatically different. The Kinski we see in Agira is so different than the Kinski we see in Fitzcarraldo, certainly different than what we see in Nosferatu and and right down the line. So that, that collaboration is one of, I'm going to say, the most important in cinema. And if you haven't seen these films, it uh, it's a it's a great place to start. Yeah, watching My Best Fiend in the context of you know having seen a couple of their films together, especially those where nature plays such a role, it's almost like for Herzog, Kinski was just another force of nature that mm-hmm. he could test himself against. Yeah, like, great I'm gonna, point. I'm going to test my filmmaking against uh, the Peruvian Amazon, and then I'm going to double up on that and take Kinski with me and see what happens. Any any parting shots on Werner Herzog? I mean, I think just. One of the things that fascinates me most is this relationship with nature that his films have because it's so distinct from other filmmakers who are in love with it, enthralled with it, want to demonstrate its beauty, which some Herzog films do. I I don't think I mentioned, but Enigma of Caspar Hauser, there are these interludes of blowing grasses, trees, ethereal music that kind of stand out. But it really is this antagonism that is such a definitive thing. Um, You know, we talk about the fear, fear of God being like um, 
the awesomeness, right? You're not really afraid, but you you register the awesomeness. I feel like Herzog registers the awesomeness of nature, but then sees it as awesomely aggressive. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he feels nature shoves first, and then he wants to find a human character who's willing to shove back and explore that dynamic through his movies. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. And you're right, not unlike his exploration of Treadwell and, and what we see in Grizzly Man, we can point to so many films. I earlier mentioned Encounters at the End of the World, Fireball, Nomad, a few others where that doesn't stop him. And in fact, maybe it does drive him. Uh, it doesn't stop him from wanting to follow people who see nature completely differently than him, who mm-hmm. are who are inspired by it in addition to finding it awe-inspiring. They, they draw their entire live, livelihoods and their lives from nature, and he's really drawn to those people. He doesn't, he doesn't use them as, as just fodder for him to you know, kind of heap scorn on or make fun of. Sure. That's not, that's not in, in Herzog's vocabulary. Having myself filmed in the wilderness of jungle, I found that beyond a wildlife film, in his material lay dormant a story of astonishing beauty and depth. I discovered a film of human ecstasies and darkest inner turmoil. Hi, Tinter. As if there was a desire in him to leave the confinements of his humanness and bond with the bears, Treadwell reached out seeking a primordial encounter. But in doing so, he crossed an invisible borderline. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. This was fun. Thank you. We appreciate it. From October of this year, that was our essential Werner Herzog films recorded live at Iowa City's film scene as part of the Refocus Film Festival. We hope to make that an annual occurrence. I think you're going to see us back there pretty regularly. Film spotting will be involved in some way. I think they're going to continue doing it. This was the second year of the fest always going to be in October. So I'm just saying, if you're not in the area, still circle it on your calendar. Maybe a time to come to Iowa City. It's lovely in the fall and it's a great fest. Thanks to everyone at Film Scene and Refocus for having us, including Programming Director Ben Delgado and Executive Director Andrew Sherburn. More info about that fest is available at refocusfilmfestival.org. That is our show. And now we are free to go Chow down on Thanksgiving dinner, Josh. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd if you'd like. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. We're asking you to pick one and only one Miyazaki film. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. You can also support us by joining the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. You'll also get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. Over in that archive, you can find reviews of Alexander Payne's films since 2011's The Descendants with George Clooney. Next year, it will be the 25th anniversary of Payne's election and the 20th anniversary of Sideways. I think both would be pretty good sacred cow options. I'd love to revisit Sideways. For sure. And I'd love to revisit Election as well, because that's a film that I remember quite liking, and I probably do have it as my second, well, I had it maybe as my second favorite pain movie, Josh. But a lot of people still, I look at lists, it's always number one. 
It's the mm. one everyone seems to adore, and I feel like I underrate it a little bit. So we'll wrestle with both of those films perhaps in the new year. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can learn more about becoming a member of the Film Spotting family. In wide release, Ridley Scott's Napoleon, Pixar's Wish, Emerald Fennel's Saltburn. And in two weeks, we'll be back. We'll have hopefully consumed so many more movies in addition to all the turkey and pie we're going to eat at Thanksgiving. We'll probably talk Napoleon, Todd Haynes, May, December, a lot of movies to catch up with, a lot of movies for you to see. Do your homework. Be prepared for the next episode of Film Spotting. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.